The following message is by Dr. Cliff McManus, pastor-teacher at Creekside Bible Church, located in Cupertino, California. Well, we continue in our worship of the Lord by going now to His Word, the Bible. If you have a Bible, you can open up to Luke chapter 6. That's where we'll be. We will be looking at the first 11 verses. It's been a delight to be going through the Gospel of Luke. If you would like to be a part of Children's Church, your fifth grader on down, younger, uh, you can head to the back. If you have a Bible, bring your Bible. Great time in God's Word with our young ones. Whole crowd back there, lots of helpers. Boy, that's, that is exciting stuff. And we're going to have an exciting time together as we have the privilege to look at God's Word. Yeah, if you haven't been with us, we've been going through the Gospel of Luke. What a delight. We are now in chapter 6, and it's exciting to think, you know, each week, a lot of all that's going on in the world and the perspective of the world and secular opinions and the secular media and statements that are proffered as though they were true, and many times they're not, that we get to come to God's house, the church, on Sunday on the Lord's Day and look to His Word together especially in the Gospel of Luke, or a Gospel, where week to week, we just, we're going to be looking at who Jesus Christ is, who He was, what He said, the true Jesus. And that's our great privilege. So we're now on Luke chapter 6. By way of reminder, where we are in Luke chapter 6, for those of you who've been here on a regular basis, we know that who wrote the Gospel of Luke? You said Luke. Good answer. Excellent. And Luke was written to a guy named... Theophilus, somebody out there paying attention, very good. We can't forget this because this is the larger context. Very long book, and Luke wrote purposefully to this man named Theophilus. He wrote Luke and Acts, volume 1 and volume 2. It could be that Theophilus was on the fence about Christianity when Luke wrote the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ. Remember these promises that Luke made to Theophilus and to us as God's people in Luke chapter 1, verse 2, that Luke, his account is reliable because he depended upon eyewitnesses, firsthand eyewitnesses, to learn of the truth and the ministry of Jesus Christ. So he literally talked to people who were around and witnessed Jesus Christ. That's Luke chapter 1, verse 2. Eyewitnesses, he either got oral, verbal eyewitness accounts with personal interactions he had with people who walked and talked with Jesus, or very well possibly that he got written eyewitness accounts as well, all the while being led by the Spirit of God to ensure that everything that he wrote down was absolutely flawless, the inspired Word of God. A second promise that Luke made to Theophilus was, knowing this information as you read it, as you're exposed to who Jesus was, His ministry, the words that He said, you are going to, as a result, know the exact truth. Well, that's something you can't get in the world. As a result of reading Scripture, studying Luke, taking it at face value, the promise is you will know the exact truth truth. That, that's enough to go to lunch on right there. So we can read the Bible with absolute confidence. We are going to learn not just, oh, it's kind of the true, it's, it's mishmash here and there, it's a little unclear, it's somewhat ambiguous, we're not quite sure. No, the exact truth about who Jesus is, every word that He said, at least that's my expectation when I'm going, that's what He said, that's what Luke said. So we get to see that this morning. You know, there's a lot, everybody has an opinion about Jesus out there. Sadly, most of it is uninformed because it's not informed by Scripture. This is the only source of truth about Jesus, the only source. 
the only reliable source. And it is exacting. We're going to see that. Jesus is now probably, he got a three-year-plus public ministry. He's probably two years into his ministry now in this account in Luke chapter 6, the best that we can tell. Luke told Theophilus, we're going to highlight, there's a lot we could say about Jesus, but we're only going to highlight certain things that are absolutely necessary that you need to know, that are essential for you to know. It's not everything you can know, it's everything that you need to know. There's a difference. So it is sufficient. It's not comprehensive or exhaustive. It is sufficient. And he's trying to prove who Jesus is. And Jesus is the Messiah, God in the flesh, by virtue of his miraculous birth. We saw that. By virtue of miraculous fulfilled prophecy, we've seen that. By virtue of the testimony of miraculous preordained eyewitnesses like John the Baptist, we saw that. By virtue of how he dealt with Satan head on in the temptation to begin his ministry in the desert. That validated that he indeed is the Messiah, the Savior of the world. And then from that point on, uh, Luke is just highlighting the ministry of Christ, his teaching, which was distinct, authoritative. It amazed people. People were in awe. They'd never heard teaching like it. Who is this man? He grew up in our village. He grew up in our town. He grew up in our synagogue. Who, who is he? We've never heard teaching like this before. So that's a validation that Jesus is the Messiah. He is God in the flesh by virtue of his teaching that is authoritative. It is divine revelation. And also to validate his teaching, Luke keeps including miracles because the Old Testament said that the Messiah would do certain kinds of miracles, some of which were unprecedented, validating that Jesus is the Messiah. It is exactly as he said. So now we're probably a year away from the cross in Luke chapter 6, which is the bigger context is we talked about earlier that Luke chapter 4 to Luke 9 is a year and a half long ministry in Galilee. Just prior to that, he had a short ministry in Judea where he did his first miracle, did water into wine, talked to Nicodemus, and now it's a year and a half in his hometown in, in Capernaum by the, the Sea of Galilee with his 12 apostles or his disciples. And he began a preaching ministry primarily, proclaiming that he is the fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy. He is indeed the Messiah. And he's going all throughout, according to Luke chapter 8, verse 1, he's going to all the towns and villages all throughout Galilee. That's a lot of towns and villages. At that time, they think there were probably about 240 different towns and villages. And that's his itinerant ministry for a good course of almost three years. Jesus' pattern, we saw, was he was a rabbi. Rabbi means teacher. Master teacher, the greatest teacher there ever was, the greatest master teacher of the Old Testament there ever was. The Old Testament scriptures is primarily what he taught. He was also unique in that in his teaching, he would at times give divine revelation that he got from the Father, unlike any other teachers. He was also unique in that he knew the Old Testament perfectly and always taught it perfectly. And his habit was going from town to town. The first thing he'd do on a Sabbath, he'd go into the synagogue. He's like little church buildings where the Jews gathered, where they'd come to hear the Word of God. They'd come hear Scripture taught. And this is the pattern of his ministry. And he's going into the synagogues. He's not in charge of the synagogues. He doesn't run the synagogues. He's not the authority of the synagogues, humanly speaking. There are people in charge of the synagogues. The Pharisees, much uh, the time, pretty much had the authority over synagogues, ran the synagogues. 
and then the priests ran and had the authority of the temple down in Jerusalem, but Jesus was allowed to teach as a rabbi. He was welcomed, but as we keep reading Luke, we just see this growing hostility because every synagogue that he goes into and he teaches, he finds resistance. He finds oppositions. He finds those who do believe. There are those who respond to the truth and gospel message. You always get two responses pretty much when you teach the Bible straightforward, black and white. You get positive responses towards God and His truth, and then you get resistance and opposition at different levels. And that's what happens as Jesus is teaching in the synagogues. He's getting some who respond positively, and then he's got formal opposition. And to the forefront throughout Luke, more and more, we see that the opposition comes from the Jewish leadership, particularly the Pharisees, the Pharisees, the Pharisees, the pure ones, the religious teachers, the masters of the Old Testament, the teachers of the Old Testament, the authorities over the synagogue. They are the ones opposing Jesus outright, overtly, with hostility. It's ironic. Because they, of all people, should be knowing who to look for with respect to the Messiah. And Jesus has all the qualifications. But he's an affront to their religion because it's a man-made, legalistic religion that smothers out the true Word of God, the Old Testament. So, over and over again, Jesus is butting heads with these Pharisees, and that's exactly what happens here in Luke 6. Let's read it. As he continues in his ministry... As many times he's teaching out in public to large crowds, to small crowds, and also in the synagogue. We have both incidents here where he's just teaching out on the roadway, out in public, by a grain field, and then he's also teaching in a synagogue right after that. So there's two different scenarios here, verses 1 through 5, he's teaching out by the grain field. He's not teaching, he just gets harassed, so he responds, and then he's formally teaching in the synagogue, verses 6 and following. These are two different events. Could have been on two different days. The common denominator in the two events in chapter 6, 1 through 11, is that both days were on a Sabbath. That's key. This is a Sabbath day. Let's follow along starting at verse 1. Now, it happened that he, Jesus, was passing through some grain fields on a Sabbath. You can underline that. Saturday. And his disciples were picking the heads of grain rubbing them in their hands and eating the grain. And some of the Pharisees said, Why do you do what is not lawful on the Sabbath? And Jesus answering them said, Have you not even read what David did when he was hungry, he and those who were with him, how he entered the house of God, the tabernacle, and took and ate the consecrated bread, the showbread, which is not lawful for any to eat except the priest alone, And then David gave it to his companions to eat. And Jesus was saying to them, The Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. That was a startling statement. The Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. Verse 6, on another Sabbath, he entered, on another Sabbath, you can underline that. He entered the synagogue and was teaching. He's like a guest teacher. And there was a man there whose right hand was withered. The scribes and the Pharisees, there they are. They run the synagogue. They've heard about Jesus. They've witnessed Jesus do things. They're threatened by Jesus. They hate Jesus. They were watching him closely to see if he healed on the Sabbath so that they might find reason to accuse him. But Jesus knew what they were thinking. And he said to the man with the withered hand in the synagogue, get up and come forward. And he got up and came forward. And Jesus said to them, I ask you, 
Jesus said to them, particularly the critical scribes and Pharisees who were there scrupulously, like hawks, watching Jesus' every move. See if he's going to be nice to anybody in the synagogue. And Jesus said to them, I ask you, is it lawful to do good? Actually, if we see the other two Gospels, Matthew and Mark, this is actually a response to a question they asked Jesus. They started it. They started the fight. Because before Jesus said this in verse 9, they asked Jesus a question. And we'll see that in the other Gospel. And Jesus turns around, as he, as he always does with his critics, when they ask him a question trying to get him in a corner, he asks them a question. And Jesus said to them, I ask you, is it lawful to do good or to do harm on the Sabbath, to save a life or to destroy it? There's only one answer they could give. After looking around at them all, he said to the man, stretch out your hand, the man with the withered hand, and he did so, and his hand was restored instantaneously. Supernatural miracle for all to see. And he did it with a word. Verse 11, but they themselves were filled with rage and discussed together what they might do to Jesus. Let me add a couple of very important details to our reading here in Luke 6 in the event that we don't get to it later. In verse 9, uh, when it says, And Jesus said to them, I ask you, is it lawful to do good or to do harm on the Sabbath, to save a life or destroy it? Mark 3 adds this, but they kept silent. They didn't answer the question. Cowards. They kept silent. And then Mark adds this to verse 10 of Luke 6. After looking around at them all, so Jesus is waiting, silence, silence, it's deafening, they don't answer, they're cowards, they know they're trapped if they answer. And it says he's looking around. at the, He is literally looking at the scribes and the Pharisees. He knows their thoughts, it says in the text. He knew what they were thinking. He knew about their preordained trap. And he's looking at them. And Luke, or Mark adds this, Mark 3, 5. Jesus was looking around at them all, the scribes and the Pharisees, with anger. That is the only time in the Bible where there is a reference to Jesus' explicit anger. This is it. He was angry when he turned the tables over at the beginning and the end of his ministry, but it didn't make this statement. He, he acted out anger. It doesn't say he was angry. This is it. Jesus is perfect. He is sinless. He's in the middle of a Bible study, and he is filled with anger. Remember how we just ended Luke 6? Somebody else was angry. Verse 11, the scribes and the Pharisees, when they saw the miracle, they were filled with rage. Look at that. What a contrast. Jesus is filled with anger and rage at their utter hypocrisy, of their utter hatred, of their utter lack of compassion. So he's burning with anger, and then you've got his opponents, and they are filled with anger and rage. Mark 3. And then, actually, Mark and Matthew added the, the end of verse 11 for us, but they themselves were filled with rage. Oh, also, it says that Jesus was looking at them with anger, and he was grieved at their hardness of heart. They had hardened hearts. They had the Old Testament memorized. They taught the Bible. They called people to submit to the Bible, not just the Bible, but more so their human interpretations that distorted the true meaning of the Bible. That's what they did. 
They didn't love people as much as they loved themselves and their reputations. They didn't listen to Jesus. They didn't believe Jesus. They didn't have a tender heart for the truth. They didn't have a tender heart towards other people, and that's why Jesus was so angry. Of all people, the religious leaders that God has ordained over the community of Israel should be the Pharisees, the scribes, the leaders. They should be shepherds. They should have a heart for people and a love for God and a love for the truth of His Word. They don't. It's the antithesis. And Jesus is angry about it, and He's grieved at their hardness of heart. They, they are just hard as flint towards the, towards the truth. And then at the end of verse 11, uh, Mark and Matthew both add this, but they themselves were filled with rage and discussed together what they might do to Jesus. Uh, the other two gospels say they discussed how they might destroy Jesus, how they might kill him. They have been talking about this since John chapter 5. So, before, so I broke up this passage into three parts for you in this narrative. These two different stories, but Luke puts them together for a purpose. The whole issue here is the Sabbath. The Sabbath is an important theme for Luke in establishing who Jesus is. Luke, more than any other gospel, talks about Jesus' ministry on the Sabbath at least six explicit times, more than any other gospel. Before we look at the details of this passage that I broke up into three points, if you have your Bible, just you can go to Exodus 20. It's, real, it's just a reminder of the Ten Commandments, but we need to read it. Exodus chapter 20, 1400 B.C., Moses has just led about almost 2 million Jews out of Egypt through the Red Sea, and they're on their way to Mount Sinai to get the Ten Commandments and the other 600 or 590 laws from God. They're on their way, and God's taking care of them. He just did unbelievable miracles. And the people are moaning and groaning every step of the way. And Moses is trying to lead these two million people. And then God says, okay, Moses, come on up in the mountain. And then God meets Moses on the mountain, and God says, I'm going to give you my law. Don't let the people come up here. Don't even let them come near the mountain. And the, the fire came down on the mountain. The mountain, mountain was shaking and trembling, and God was speaking forth as face-to-face -face with Moses to give him the law. And he gives him the Ten Commandments in Exodus chapter 20. The first four commandments have to do with humans' relationship with God. And the fourth of those commandments is Exodus 20, verse 8. And God tells Moses, okay, now tell your people. From now on, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Verse 8, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Remember the Sabbath day. Prioritize the Sabbath day. Establish the Sabbath day. Honor the Sabbath day. Set aside the Sabbath day. That's what remember means. It's a command. It's an imperative. It's not an option. Remember the Sabbath day. Keep it holy. Keep it separate. Keep it distinct. Have it be set apart. Make it make you distinct. None of the nations of the world do this. There were no nations on planet earth at that time that honored the Sabbath day. The Egyptians, where Israel just came from, that's where their last employment was. That's what's on their resume. What were you? Oh, I was a full-time slave for the Pharaoh of Egypt. What was your vacation package? Didn't have one. What were your benefits? Didn't have any. Well, how often did you work? Every day. How long? All day. Till I almost died. Do you have enough food? No. Do you have enough supplies? No. It's all right there in Exodus chapter 1 and 2. That's what they had to endure for who knows how long. The Israelites working for Pharaoh. They didn't have a day off. They didn't have the seventh day. They didn't have a Sabbath rest. That isn't how Pharaoh operated. He didn't care about his workers. He didn't care if they died. He didn't care if the animals died. He didn't care if they didn't have enough food. So what a refreshment. This is totally unique and new. 
God, first thing out of the gate, you know what? You work six days and you get a seventh day off. Are you really? What? Why? Well, God tells them why. To make you different, to make you unique, to set you apart so the world is watching and they'll know that you belong to me. That's what holy means, set apart. That's one of the main purposes of the Sabbath. This was unfounded. Now, of course, it was in the first pattern after the first week of creation that was a literal creation in six literal days. He got rested. He ceased. He wasn't tired. He just stopped. He was actually, what it meant is he completed all of his work to his satisfaction on the seventh day. He didn't need to create anything on the seventh day. He rested. And he set the pattern of a seven-day week for the rest of human history. The fact that we have a seven-day week is not a coincidence or a byproduct of hapless, meaningless, purposeless evolution. Because God created the world in six days, rested on the seventh, knowing that in the future, with his people, Israel in particular, that would be the pattern of their life. And he establishes it here. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Well, get specific, God. Verse 9, six days you shall labor and do all your work. Work is good. Work is a gift from God. But the seventh day, that would be Saturday, people. But the seventh day is a Sabbath or a time of rest of the Lord or Yahweh your God, his personal name, Yahweh. In it you shall not do any work. There it is. It doesn't go into all kinds of details. It's just real simple. Just stop working. Cease from your work. Don't do any work. Rest. Those are the parameters. Well, who? Well, you. Okay, who else? Well, your kids, they don't have to do chores like they do during the week and go out at four in the morning and milk the cow. Really? I mean, my kids don't have to work on Sunday? Yeah, that's right. They need a break too. You, your son, your daughter. Well, what about my slaves? Can we treat them like the slaves we had when we were, in, when we were slaves in Egypt? Where we never got a day off? No. See, God is gracious. God is merciful. God is kind. He even gives the slaves a day off. They need to recuperate. They need to rest. They need to be refreshed. Your male and your female servant are slaves. And even your cattle, your animals. God cares about the animals. Proverbs 12, God cares about the animals. They need to rest. They need refreshment. For in six days, Yahweh made the heavens and the earth, the sea and all that is in them, and he rested on the seventh day. He ceased on the seventh day. Therefore, uh, Yahweh blessed the seventh day and made it holy. Let me just tell you a little bit about the Sabbath, because there, there is tremendous confusion about the Sabbath. Even in the church abroad, all the time, there has been for since the time of the Pharisees, 2,000 years plus of confusion about the Sabbath. I've been asked questions by members of this church about the Sabbath pretty routinely, or Saturdays and the seventh day, or Sabbath, or is church uh, Sunday the new Sabbath, the Christian Sabbath? So briefly, we need to address it, because there's tremendous confusion about it. It it shouldn't be confusing, because it's all laid out in the Bible. First time that God ever said that anybody should celebrate the Sabbath was at this time, If you went four chapters earlier to Exodus 16, it's right when they got through the Red Sea and they needed food, and God said, I'm going to send down manna for six days, and on the seventh day, rest. Don't work on the seventh day. I'm going to send a double dose of food on Friday so they don't have to work on Saturday. I'm going to send two days' worth on the sixth day so you don't have to work on the seventh day. And there's two phrases there in Exodus 16. It says, God gave the Sabbath to Israel. It's a gift. And also says that they were to rest. So that was God's intention. God gave the Sabbath to the Israelites as a blessing. That's the overriding thought. That's the first thought that should come to their mind. Oh, blessing. 
relief, rest, enjoyment, refreshing. Then there's other explicit statements in the Old Testament that define even further the purpose of the Sabbath from God's point of view. Listen to these. A day of refreshing, Exodus 23, 12. A day of gladness, number 10, Numbers 10. A time to celebrate, Exodus 31, 16. A day of delight, Isaiah 58. These are all descriptions of God's intention of the Sabbath. They're Saturday. A day of worship, focusing on God, Leviticus 16. Quote, a time for solemn rest to humble your soul's before God, to be with family, to be with community, to cease from work. The Gospels from the Lord Jesus himself, he said that the Sabbath was made for man. It was a gift to man. It was a gift to humanity. God gave the Sabbath as a gift to humanity to bless them, to encourage them, to give them rest and fulfillment and focused worship on God and family and people and community and the theocracy of Israel. God's parameters are very general, don't work. What were the guidelines? Well, what was violating the Sabbath? By the way, uh, if you violated the Sabbath, it was the death penalty. Exodus 31, 15, if you violated the Sabbath, death penalty. We have an example of that in the Old Testament. Someone was gathering wood and they were stoned to death. They were executed. So God took it very seriously. We don't have a whole lot of details about what constituted violating the Sabbath in terms of work, but here's just a few examples. This is almost exhaustive from the Old Testament. Generally, it was just no work for everybody, no excessive travel, Exodus 16, 29, no excessive travel, no kindling of fire or no gathering of wood, Exodus 35, no plowing or harvesting, Exodus 34, 21. Nope. So if it was harvest season, yeah, well, look at all those fields out there. I got to go out uh, the seventh day. I got to go out seven days. I got too much work. No, God said, no, I will compensate. I will make up for it. You will be okay. I am the provider. It's not all about you. You don't have to be a workaholic. Trust me. Practicing the Sabbath day really was a step of faith, especially for workaholics. Boy, if I work seven days, look at, ooh, that's an additional 16 hours. Ooh, yeah, and that's uh, how many hours? Oh, boy, look at all that money, money, money. No, it's trusting God to be the provider. It's like he rained down manna on the, on the sixth day. Twofold. Trusting God. So we can take that away. Are you a crazy workaholic that works 16 hours a day driven by the fact that if you don't, it won't get all done? Or if you don't, then you won't make as much money as you think you need to? That's not trusting God. That's trusting yourself. That's man-centered. And I'm not saying we practice the Sabbath today, but this was God's pattern for his people in the theocracy of Israel. Trust me. No harvesting. This is the one that's going to apply to Exodus chapter 6. No harvesting. Uh, no gathering of wood. We said that one. No carrying loads out of the, in and out of the city through the city gates. That was commerce. That was making money. No business transactions. That is not to happen. Not only did they have a seventh day, they had a seventh year that was a Sabbath. You go six years, and on the seventh year, you let the land rest. You don't plant your crops. You just let it sit there for a year and let the land get rest. And that was a Sabbath year. Israel didn't honor that 70 different times 
And they got punished by God, and so he sent them in Babylon captivity for 70 years as payback for their violation of this. God takes it seriously. And then every 50th year, there was a, another Sabbath year called Jubilee year. 49 years, seven sets of seven years, 49 years on the 50th year was Jubilee year. Sabbath year, where it was time to be freed of all of your debts, many other blessings that came with it. So that's the background of the Sabbath. Point being is that it was all intended by God to be a blessing to His people. And it was one of the laws of the 1613 laws that God gave to Moses to give to His people. And the most important thing to keep in mind about the laws, why did God give the laws to the people, these 613 laws to the theocracy of Israel? Well, Jesus told us. Real simply, the Apostle Paul told us that the law was given through Moses to show us the need of a Savior. To show us the need of a Savior, because you can't keep all the laws, it's impossible. Then it exposes your sin and your weaknesses. Then, you have, then you're overcome with guilt. That's what the law does. That's why I had to kill and slaughter all those animals. Somebody needed to die for sin. God's penalty requirement for sin is death. So the law, that was its purpose, to show that our need for a Savior. It also revealed the character of God and what He was like, what He approved and didn't approve. It defined sin. And another important element, virtually every one of those 200 or 613 laws, uh, it either showed God's holiness, our sinfulness, or the way that the bridge can be gapped through the sacrifice of a coming Savior. That was the purpose of the law. And also... Just about every one of those laws was a picture of the coming Messiah, Jesus Christ. There are many of the laws or requirements of the law that were typology or prophetic of Jesus Christ. And that was true of the tabernacle. Every implement, every piece of furniture in the tabernacle that eventually became the temple was a picture of Jesus Christ. Because you, you enter the tent or the tabernacle and there's a, a wall there because you're sinful. And you're not allowed to go into the presence of God. He's holy, you're sinful. That was a picture. You can't just waltz in there. If you need anything, you've got to talk to the priest. The priest was a picture. The priest was a picture of Jesus Christ, the great high priest. There needs to be a mediator between you, sinful person, and a holy God. That's why there was a priest there. So you greet, you greet the priest at the outside door. And you bring your sacrifice. You can't even talk to God or the priest without a sacrifice, without bloodshed. You can't even have a relationship in light of your sin that condemns you to hell, to death. It needs to be appeased. So you bring a sacrifice. And there's that altar. That's what that is. Okay, you made your sacrifice. Now you have to, then there's the table of water or the, the labor of water. You've got to be cleansed. That's the picture of the Holy Spirit who cleanses from sin because of the sacrifice. And then the priest is allowed to go into the holy place, not the holy of holies, but the holy place outside the holy of holies. And in there, there were three things. There was the, the golden lampstand. And Jesus said, I am the light of the world. He was referring to the lampstand in the holy place. And there was an altar of incense. Those represented prayers going up to God, sinners praying to God, be merciful to us. And then there was a table with 12 loaves of bread, 12 loaves of bread, maybe representing the 12 tribes of Israel, but it was called the bread of the presence, and it was a reminder continually that all of our bread, all of our sustenance comes from God, and that the bread of the presence was handled by the priests. They cooked it once a week, every week, and they replaced those 12 loaves every Sabbath day. Every Sabbath day, every Sabbath day, they had to put new, fresh 12 loaves of bread. Each loaf of bread weighed about six pounds. That's a big loaf of bread. It was holy bread. It was consecrated bread. The only ones that could eat it on the Sabbath were the priests. That was part of what they ate. No one else was allowed to eat that bread. 
And that bread represented Jesus Christ. That golden lampstand represented Jesus Christ. And then inside of that was the Holy of Holies, where God's literal presence was, where God tabernacled with his people. That's why John says in John chapter 1, Jesus Christ came, God in the flesh, and he tabernacled with his people. He dwelt in a tent to be literally among his people. Jesus fulfilled everything in the law. It was all a picture and prophecy of him. With that, let's go back to uh, Luke chapter 6. Just in case you're wondering, I wasn't planning on finishing the whole thing today. So, uh, But let's at least look at uh, the first point there in Luke chapter 6. The title of the sermon is Lord or Jesus, Lord of the Sabbath and the Word, that meaning of Scripture. First point there is just the first two verses. Let's look at those. Just as a heading there, I put distorting Scripture. That's what is really going on here in the first two verses. Distorting Scripture, that's what... And then false religion misuses the Bible. Verses 1 and 2. False religion misuses the Bible. Now, it happened, verse 1, that as he was passing through some grain field... What was Jesus doing? Well, he's walking around from town to town, city to city. He's preaching the gospel because that's what he said he came to do. And on his way, there were paths that went through certain grain fields, and they're going through the neighborhood, kind of like when I was jogging uh, not too long ago, and... Uh, I keep jogging by this one house, and this orange tree is like over on the sidewalk, and it's just all over the place, and they're fresh oranges, and they're all over the sidewalk, and they're just laying there. There's some good ones. So, oop, just grabbed one off the ground. It was still fresh. Was that okay? Was that legal? Was I stealing? Not according to Deuteronomy. I, I was just passing by, and I was gleaning the fields. And that's what Deuteronomy allowed you to do, the Jews. If you're in the land of Israel and you're passing by and you're a foreigner or you're not from that neighborhood and you're hungry and you've been traveling, you can go and glean through the fields in a limited amount. A certain You couldn't harvest and start taking it home with you and stuffing it down your pants and selling it for money. But you could on the spot, on the fly, grab some and, and eat it there on the spot for sustenance. Why? Because God owned everything. This is a theocracy. God owned everything was private ownership, but ultimately God was the Lord of the land of Israel. And so that was gracious provision on God's part. So that's what the Pharisees, or that's what Jesus is doing. So this is legit to be going by a grain field that's not theirs. They're hungry. They've been traveling. He's got uh, his apostles with him, and they stop, and they're rubbing, and his apostles are the ones, they're, they're rubbing it, and they're eating the wheat kernels, just getting a little sustenance. And the Pharisees See them. Now, I don't know how the Pharisees saw them. If they're hanging out up in the trees, they're probably at a distance, hiding behind bushes. I mean, they have been chasing Jesus down now for a year since the first time he cleansed the temple. Remember that? That's how he opened his ministry. They're selling animals, ripping people off for a profit, and the first thing he does to begin his ministry is he turns their tables over and starts screaming and yelling at them and curses them and kicks them out of the temple. They would never forget that. And they have been hawking him ever since. That's what they're doing. They're shadowing him out in the grain fields, walking down the streets. Some of these guys are from Judea and Jerusalem. They hated him so much. But some of the Pharisees said, why do you do what is not lawful on the Sabbath? First point. False re- these are religionists. They said they believe in the Bible. They were teachers of the Bible. They thought the Bible was the authoritative Word of God. They thought the Bible was clear, inerrant, truly spoke of God. They actually had a legitimate bibliology. 
problem was they were not regenerate. So their religion was strictly superficial, which made them legalists to the core, which made them, what's the main characteristic of a legalist? They are critical. They are judgmental. They have hardened hearts towards wrong people. They have the wrong priorities. They do not have mercy, grace, compassion. They have an inflated attitude about themselves. And it's all about the letter of the law. That was them to a T. That's who these guys are. And what's also characteristic about a legalist, a true legalist, a Christian legalist, or a religious legalist, I should say, who says they believe in the Bible, is routinely they misinterpret the Bible. They misapply the Bible. They take the Bible out of context. They misapply the Bible. That's what a legalist does. And they're constantly judging others with the Bible. They don't do self-introspection. They're earning their religion. They earn favor with God by obedience to the Bible. They don't even understand the basics of the gospel. That was these guys. And here's just a categorical distortion of the Bible. Because we just saw the Bible did talk about the Sabbath. So the Pharisees said they believed in the Sabbath. They read about it in the Old Testament. But the problem was they added a whole bunch of rules to what the Bible had to say about the Sabbath. They invented their own human religion to define how to apply the Sabbath with a zillion rules. Basically defining what constitute a violation of the Sabbath. And they had their own list. And that was the problem. So here they accused Jesus' disciples of violating the Sabbath. Do you know that there was nothing in the Old Testament that said that they were violating the Sabbath? Well, where'd they get that? Well, it was probably a distortion of Exodus 34, 21 that said no harvesting on the Sabbath. And here, what were they doing? Oh, they picked just some ears. Oh, that's harvesting. And they're rubbing it together. Oh, that's winnowing. That's literally what they were thinking. Then they actually had their own written human traditions that said that. So they are accusing Jesus and his disciples of violating the Sabbath, but we need to keep in mind, this is not in the Bible. Jesus and his disciples did not violate the Sabbath. They didn't violate the biblical laws of the Sabbath. They violated a man-made human legalistic tradition that was invented by these Pharisees or the rabbis who came before them. They're violating man-made religion, but that's how they operate. And Jesus came, as he came to speak the truth, he exposed their man-made religion. And it was the foundation of everything that they thought, believed, and how they lived. And that's why it was so threatening and alarming, and they couldn't handle it. And he needs to be shut down. He needs to be silenced. That's why it said they sought to destroy him. He's exposing our false religion, our gig. Why do you do what is not lawful on the Sabbath? My subtitle there, religion, false religion misuses the Bible. Now, when you read that, Uh, Don't be thinking, okay, uh, Hinduism, Buddhism, or even Mormonism, Islam, because that's not what the context here is here, and that's usually not what Jesus has an affront about. It's actually false religion within inside the believing community. It's false religion within the true religion. It's false religion within Christianity. It's false religion within uh, true Israel religion. It's false religion within the religion that Jesus practices. That's what he got most angry about. That's what he had most disdain for. Is those who claim to believe in the Bible, teach the Bible, be authorities of the Bible, and then misuse the Bible and undermine the grace of God and have hardened hearts. They're not regenerate. They're not soft towards the teaching of Jesus. They're not soft towards the gospel. They have no mercy towards people. What was the fulfillment of the law? According to Paul and Jesus, the fulfillment of the law is one thing, love. Love fulfills the law. 
And if you were not characterized by love, you had no idea what the law was for. And that's the Pharisees and the scribes. They misuse the law. They abuse the law. They have no love. They have no mercy. And that's why Jesus said they had hardened hearts. And that's what infuriated him so much. We're going to stop there. And we'll continue uh, next week on this passage. But just a couple of thoughts from this passage and the rest of the passage that we're going to see next week. Just good reminders for us. Uh, that mercy, kindness, and grace have priority over ritual and ceremony. Number two, legalism in the church, in God's true religion, legalism is a subtle, dangerous, hellish counterfeit of biblical truth. Legalism. And then number three, and we'll leave with this one. Jesus is sovereign over all creation, including the Old Testament, including the Sabbath itself. As a matter of fact, Jesus came in and he fulfilled the Sabbath. What was the point of the Sabbath? It said at the beginning is God gave the Sabbath to his people to bless them, to give them rest. And then Jesus said in Matthew chapter 11 to crowds of people, come to me all who are weary. The, the Greek word there for weary is where we get the word copious, toilsome, toilsome. Come to me, those who are weary, you are tired. Why are you, why are you tired? What, what, what's toilsome? Doing works righteousness is toilsome. Always trying to please God with your own works. So frustrating because you can't do it perfectly and all the time and continually. And you have to keep doing it and keep doing it and keep doing it to try to override your sin. That's what's toilsome. It's spiritual toilsome, trying to earn favor with God by your works. Jesus said, give it up. It's never going to happen. Come to me, all who are weary, and then he said burdened or burdensome. What is that? Well, that's the burden, the heavy spiritual burden that comes as a result of trying to earn favor with God by your works. You're toiling and toiling and toiling. You can't do it. You're overwhelmed with this spiritual burden of guilt that is weighing you down, pressing you down, and you know that you don't stand right before a holy God. You know it in your conscience. So Jesus is saying, give it up. Give it up. Come to me. Come all who are weary and heavy, heavy laden. Get this. And I will give you Rest, that's the word for the Sabbath. I will give you rest. Complete rest, spiritual rest, eternal rest, forgiveness of sin, adopted into my family, eternal life by knowing me through the gospel. That's what Christianity is all about. That's what Jesus came to offer sinners. With that, let's go ahead and pray. Father, we thank you for our time together and the reminder from your word of our blessed Savior, Jesus Christ, the risen Savior, the glorified Savior, the sovereign Lord of heaven who reigns over all, who's even in our midst, in our presence, and those of us who know Him, He's in our soul through Your Holy Spirit. Thank You for His ongoing promise that He will give any sinner who is toiling and burdened with their own sin, with their own failures, with this cursed world, He will give them rest by belief in his glorious gospel. We thank you for that great truth. We commit it all to you, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you for listening. For more information about Creekside Bible Church, please visit our website at creeksidebiblechurch.com.